Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody who understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly biotechnology podcast that's not just about biotechnology. Providing information to help you change hearts and minds. Moving innovations to application with communication. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things it can do for people and a planet. My name is Kevin Fulta and today we're going to talk about the industrial production of different proteins using transgenic plants. And with me today we have Dr. Elizabeth Hood. She is the Distinguished Professor of Agriculture at Arkansas State University and also the CEO of Infinite Enzymes and someone I got to know a few weeks ago at a really nice meeting in Virginia Tech. So, uh, hi, Beth. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Kevin. Thank you for asking me. I really appreciate it because this is one area where we've had a lot of requests about having somebody to talk about what are the ways in which things like industrial enzymes or vaccines or ever, anything can be made in plants and then used for either human therapeutics or used in um, other types of applications. And so I really appreciate you joining me with this today because you really were a pioneer in using plants as factories to produce products. And uh, why are plants an attractive choice to generate such proteins? Well, uh, the advantages in this system of using plants as biofactories have been touted for a long time uh, for in particular for vaccines or human therapeutics, the greatest value is there are no animal pathogens associated with plant materials. And so if you make a vaccine or a human therapeutic or antibodies or whatever in plants, you really don't have the um, concern about having animal pathogens in the product. On the other hand, if you're doing something with industrial enzymes, we like plants because you can get high expression of your protein. Uh, you can do it with very little uh, cost, and they can be the most inexpensive form of production because you don't have to have a large factory um, made out of steel in order to do the production. Well, many of your earlier publications, at least um in the area of using plants as factories, really were about developing vaccines and even monoclonal antibodies. And why has that practice not really become standard yet? 
That's a great question. And we, we being those of us who started out in this area 20 some years ago, um, sometimes continue to ask that question. Part of it is resistance of the biopharmaceutical companies to change uh, their products from one system to another system because they have to go through a lot of trials to show equivalence. Part of it is fear of genetic engineering, and that's been a big deal over the years. But also part of it is the companies that are still working in this area are small and they are not supported by large pharmaceutical companies or venture capital investors. And so development is very slow. But isn't that kind of funny to you as a scientist that, you know, here, here's a case where the same companies have developed things like insulin, which dominates the market rather than it's, uh, I guess what you call, uh, you know, grind up pancreas production. Yet using the same kind of recombinant technology is slow for other types of applications. It is. I, yes. It just uh, very much surprises all of us who are still working in this area, but we are persistent and I think we're getting a few products out there and we're getting a lot more press these days. So I think it's going to happen. Well, what are some of the other medically relevant proteins? I mean, um, I know most of your work these days is, is in a different area, but what are some of them that are being produced in plants? Well, I know that one of my colleagues is working on a vaccine, an oral vaccine for hepatitis B. This is being produced in corn, and it's going to be in clinical trials very soon. It seems to work quite well in animal models. I have another colleague who's working on enzyme replacement therapy for rare diseases, um, and the big pharmaceutical companies don't like rare diseases because the um, target population is so low. So it makes a very good market to address um, using a new technology such as plants. In this case, the um, company is working with a transgenic or um transgenic tobacco, and that sounds terrible because tobacco is kind of bad, but this is a unique variety of tobacco that isn't, uh, doesn't have any nicotine in it. And I know that there is um, uh, against Ebola outbreak that was occurred a couple of years ago. They used a tobacco system to make antibodies against the Ebola virus, and they were very effective in being able to combat the disease. So that's some of the examples. And you mentioned another one of the ironies of this particular discipline is that a lot of the work is being done in tobacco and uh, like uh, Medicago and um, uh, a number of other companies have really chose that as, as, a, as a good system. And I guess we'll talk about plant systems that do this on the other side, but why is tobacco particularly amenable towards protein production? The people who use tobacco don't make stable transgenic plants that contain the uh, enzyme or pharmaceutical protein in in the plant itself. They use tobacco as a transient system. So that just means they they suck the the mechanism into the leaves and harvest them four days later and they get quick production, but it's not a 
an ongoing stable production system. So it's been developed as this short-term, quick-turnaround production system. Yeah, so just for the listeners who may not be familiar with that, it, it is a case where you're adding the DNA to the leaf, usually by some sort of immersion or maybe by placing the plant in a solution of bacteria that contain the gene and giving it a little bit of a vacuum, sometimes by pushing it in with a syringe. And you actually cause the plant to take up a little bit of the DNA and actually express it, but it's not stably integrated into the genome. So that's the big difference here. And, And so tobacco is an excellent system for that. Um, especially the, the one kind, uh, Bentamiana, it's called. Um, but what about um, other types of industrial enzymes? What else is being produced that you're aware of today? There are only two companies that I know of today that are actively pursuing industrial enzymes in plants. And that's ours, which is Infinite Enzymes. Well, no, that's not true. There's another one. Um, there's a company called Ventria that is using rice. Um, they're not doing industrial enzymes, though. They make albumin, um, bovine serum albumin, or human serum albumin. Uh, there's a company in Argentina that um, took over some uh, products from Canada, and they're making chymosin in safflower. And chymosin is the enzyme that it used to make cheese. Um, And it's made currently in most systems, it's made in bacteria. But this is an example where it's actually made in a plant. That's really interesting because we've talked about this on the podcast before, way back in the beginning, maybe episode 36 or so, where it was um, where we discussed cheese making enzymes and uh, and how they're how they're used and um, how they're cultured and it would really be cool to be able to do that in plant. Is, is there a reason that they chose a plant system over the microbe? I don't know why they chose to make chymosin other than it has a good market. And they their platform was to use an oil seed to fuse the protein to an oil body so that separation from the plant material was easy. You just floated it out on the oil layer. Um, that was their technology platform, and it seems to work quite well for chymosin. Um, our own company is making cellulases and peroxidases right now, and um, we're in the process of finding new markets for those. Good, and we'll come back to those um, on the other side of the break because I'm really interested in what are the applications and and what does the p- potential outlook look like for the use of such enzymes. Um, but what were the first commercially available enzymes that were produced in plants? I love this question. Um, the very first protein that was made in a plant that was sold is was called Avidin. It's not an enzyme. It's a protein from egg whites, and um, it's used in a lot of molecular biology experimental applications. Um, That was in about 1995, I believe. And the first enzyme was beta-glucuronidase, which is an enzyme that everybody uses to to do transient transformation systems. It's a marker protein. It turns blue when you give it a certain substrate. But the first real commercial uh, larger scale application enzyme was trypsin, and it was produced in corn, and it came out about 10 or 15 years ago. 
Yeah, and what does trypsin do? Just for folks who uh, don't normally, you know, work in this particular area. Trypsin is probably the strongest protease that is out there. It cuts up proteins. It's in your digestive tract. Um, the particular enzyme that we put into corn was from uh, bovine pancreas, and so it's a pancreatic enzyme from um, cows that actually um, used to be extracted from cows, but now they use trypsin to um, mature insulin, which is also produced in bacteria now, but not in its final form. So the trypsin is actually used to um, uh, mature the uh, insulin so it can be used um, in humans. Ah, perfect. We'll take a little bit of a break right now. We're talking with Dr. Elizabeth Hood. She's the Distinguished Professor of Agriculture at Arkansas State University and also the CEO of Infinite Enzymes. Uh, This is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll be back in just a moment. Hello, Talking Biotech listeners. My name is Nick Syke, and I wanted to take just a quick moment to tell you about No Ideas Media. That's No with a K and a W. It's a media company I've recently started, and its express purpose is to have pragmatic conversations about divisive topics. And I'm willing to bet that since you're here listening to a biotechnology podcast right now, you'd probably agree that a pragmatic conversation about this topic could benefit a lot of people, especially when we're talking about biotechnology in food, the dreaded GMO. This is the first topic I wanted No Ideas Media to focus on, and I wanted to learn it pretty well. So I traveled like all over the place, Hawaii to Uganda. I interviewed a Schwaka experts, including this pretty awesome guy you might have heard of named Kevin Folta. I'm making videos with all these interviews, and I'd love you to check them out. You can find them by searching No Ideas Media on YouTube or Facebook. Remember, that's no as in knowledge. Every week, you'll find a new video featuring some exciting expert or topic to do with genetically engineered food. And the videos are perfect for people who aren't super familiar with the science. So I would really encourage you to share them, especially with people you know who need to take a look at this scary topic of GMO a little more pragmatically. Also, if you want to get in on a surprisingly constructive conversation about this topic and maybe even contribute to changing a few minds, follow No Ideas Media on Facebook and get in on the conversations there. It also really helps us if you subscribe to the No Ideas Media YouTube channel. Plus, that way you'll always know when there's something new and exciting to watch and share. And I mean, let's face it, we all want to be in the know, right? That's why you're listening to this podcast after all, which I think I'll let you get back to about now. Thanks a lot. And we're back with the Talking Biotech Podcast. We're talking with Dr. Elizabeth Hood from Arkansas State University and also um, Infinite Enzymes. And we're talking about industrial-derived industrial proteins and enzymes that uh, are coming from transgenic plants. So plants that are being used as factories to produce proteins for different applications. Um, So let's go back to some of the work that you're doing now and some of the work with Infinite Enzymes. Uh, What crops are you using? And uh, we talked a little bit about tobacco before as a transient uh, expression system. What are you using as stable transgenic systems and why are they considered most suitable? Another great question, Kevin. Um, I use corn. 
um, just regular old ZMA's corn. And we chose corn about 20 years ago when we first started some of these projects because of its uh, ease of manipulation in the lab and because it makes uh, it has high yields in the field. There is a great infrastructure for being able to grow it, harvest it, and process it that's already established. So we didn't have to create any new technology to be able to grow it and process it. Plus, it's very stable in storage. And when you put a new protein into corn seeds, those seeds will protect that protein for many years. And so you can use the corn to produce more of your product out of storage for a long time. No, I guess the other big plus about corn is that a lot of people are really good at growing huge amounts of it and the storage and the logistics and uh, all that stuff seems to be pretty worked out pretty well. And are there um, specific genetic lines that are more amenable towards protein production than others? Actually, not. that's not what we look at. There is a particular line or two that are very, very good in tissue culture, which is the area that that's how we grow the corn sterilely to be able to put the genes into it in the first place. And then once we get our plants back from that easy type of corn to grow in tissue culture, then we start breeding it into the varieties that we want to use in the field. So whatever variety grows well, where you're trying to grow it is the type of corn that you breed, you breed your transgenic line to to make a good hybrid for production. But one of the problems that I see with this is that you're putting transgenic plants in the field. And what are the regulatory concerns? And do you plan to deregulate the plants? Right now, our acreage is very small. So we don't ever plant more than about 10 acres of our transgenic corn products. And it's much less expensive for us to just grow it under permit with certain isolation um, containment applied to the field. So we have to keep it away from other corn plants and we have to monitor the field after we harvest the corn to make sure none other grows back. But because deregulation through the USDA and FDA is so expensive at this point, we're not probably going to deregulate any of our products. We will continue to grow them under permit. Okay. And I guess when I when I saw your talk a few weeks ago, you talked mostly about not like the whole corn plant, like you'd be using leaves and other tissues to purify the protein, but actually focusing on the kernel and even parts of the kernel. So why is that really the best system to use for production? Because seeds know how to store protein. And that's absolutely the reason why we chose the seed. Um, proteins are very stable in seed. They're very high accumulation of the protein can be achieved in the seed. And it can be stored. Um, it's just a really great system for high-level production of these proteins. And with that production system, what are the enzymes or other proteins that you're producing now with your company? And why is production in plants still an advantage, you know, over other ways that you might do it for those enzymes? We started out um, producing cellulases in 
popcorn plants. And cellulases are the enzymes that degrade plant bodies. You know, the major molecule in the world is cellulose. It's what makes plants rigid and stand up out in nature. And there's so much cellulose out there that we want to be able to use the components of cellulase to make biofuels and other products. And cellulose is made up of glucose molecules. Glucose is the basic sugar that all organisms use for energy and for the basic building block of almost all materials that are of organic or living origin. And so cellulases were our first try. We were really hoping to be able to get into the cellulosic ethanol industry, but unfortunately that hasn't developed. It's it's had a very slow start for things far beyond where we are with the enzymes. And so we're looking at applying cellulases to recycled paper pulp and different types of applications like that. We also made another enzyme that um, for all intents and purposes does oxygen chemistry. So it knows how to move electrons around. And that's a really dangerous type of thing to do in a living system. So when you make that in bacteria or fungi, it can be very toxic to the bacteria or the fungus. And so making it in plants, we can actually hide it from the physiology of the plant so that we can accumulate very large amounts of it. Okay, I see how that would work. Sure, that makes sense because the plant is a little more tolerant than well, you can compartmentalize it, right? You're 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 basically tucking away this enzyme in a place where there's no physiological relevance or no availability to oxygen. Or how how exactly is that working? Well, the other substrates. It's not just the oxygen. Um, these enzymes that we put in that do this kind of chemistry require other substrates besides just oxygen and and electrons. And so if you can tuck them away somewhere in the plant where there is no other substrate, then they're not active. How much of a of a of a market is there though for things like remediating paper pulp and and other types of uses of cellulases? Is this a growing market as we become more recycling conscious? And do you imagine people having a greater demand for these types of enzymes? Absolutely. The market potential for industrial enzymes is growing at about anywhere from 10 to 13% per year. And I think the recycled paper market is going to be huge. Um, I think remediation is going to be huge. There are people, the textile applications are remarkable. Every day we're getting new inquiries about what types of applications these enzymes can be used in. And I'm just stunned at the breadth and size of some of these markets. And right now, the uh, availability of the enzymes that we make is from a single one or two suppliers, and people are looking for alternatives. So I think we have a good shot at some of those markets. That's pretty exciting. I never really thought about it very much, but we hear the complaints about um, our landfills and the oceans and places where we're dumping the uh, the residues of human existence and people saying things like a pair of jeans taking a thousand years to break down or plastics or things like that. Do you really see this as a potential target for future pipelines of products in your company? I'm not sure 
from a solid waste uh, degradation, but I certainly see it in water remediation. I would love to find an enzyme that would degrade plastic, but I think that, you know, we're not into discovery of enzymes. We're into overproduction of them. Our, our real advantage is in making enzymes that have huge markets because it's easy to grow corn and make more of it. But I, um, I know that enzymes are going to have a major impact on the amount of garbage that we produce because if you make things with enzymes, they will be degraded. No, very true. And I think people would be surprised at the number of consumer products that contain an enzymatic activity to assist in, in degradation or even preparation, uh, things like for food, but then also uh, laundry detergents, you know, containing an active enzymes. And uh, it's, so there's a lot of interesting applications there. But with all of the applications, earlier on, we spoke about vaccines and monoclonal antibodies and kind of this uh, fear that's there and reasons why the technology isn't always accepted. And what is the current state of that, maybe in the U.S. and EU with respect towards recombinant proteins? When it comes to recombinant proteins in food, it's pretty bad. Um, The problem with food is that people perceive that genetic engineering contaminates their food and the risk versus the benefit is not understood where genetic engineering can really change um, the, the risk profile to me and to those of us who understand the science. And so when we start talking about vaccines and uh, antibodies and um, therapeutics, if you're sick and you need a drug and the only place it's coming from is a plant, you have a lot less fear of that than being sick. So I think there will be more acceptance of that. The FDA doesn't have a big um, resistance to it. And I know that NIH is interested in this at some level, although they, they don't really like plant production too much at NIH. But um, I, I think we're going to get over this pretty soon. Yeah, I tend to agree. I think it's one of these things where if it's the best factory to produce it, then that should produce it. And we have an awful lot of know-how with uh, growing plants in this country and, and people who know how to do it and people who are getting uh, not compensated enough for the plants they're producing. And so th- as a value added uh, potential here, this is really cool stuff. So we have a, a, a lot of people listening today who are excited to talk about these products with friends and family and even communicate in other formal contexts. And how would you, what advice would you have for them about com- how to communicate about the potential of plants as factories for recombinant proteins? That's a great question. And I try to always talk about the advantages, the fact that it's a very green technology, it doesn't require a lot of buildings or structures. So you don't have to um, destroy a farm to build a factory. The products are extremely low toxicity. They tend to be either in 
non-toxic plants or in food plants. And as long as you are able to sequester them in a way that doesn't allow them to mix with the food supply, I just think that the technology is wonderful. Plus, one other thing that I hadn't said was the acreage that is involved in the production of vaccines and pharmaceuticals and industrial enzymes is tiny compared to the acreage that is required for food production. And so it's pretty easy to have a concept of a thousand acres of corn that produce cellulases for some application versus having a hundred million acres of corn that's produced for animal feed. It the the contrast is pretty amazing. Yeah, and that's the other the other interesting part about this is that when you look at um, compounds like vinblastine or vincristine uh, that already come from plants that are used to treat things like uh, Hodgkin's uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma and uh, other types of um, other types of cancers. These are all already derived from plants, but are derived from plants in uh, acres and acres, hundreds of acres of um, periwinkle to produce a few little crumbs of this compound. Right. And if, if we had the capacity to do this in something like corn, which makes, you know, uh, uh, which maybe even though it's not a protein, it, uh, if you can make the enzymes that maybe can synthesize it uh, to metabolically engineer the corn to boost vincristine ven- production or any plant, um, it just seems like a no-brainer to me. Yeah, you would think so. Um, making a molecule like vinblastin or vincristin is a little more complicated because it takes a series of enzymes. But I would suspect that the uh, precursor molecules are available in corn, so it may not take too many. Um, or even in tobacco. So we can see other types of things being produced for sure. And it seems to me, you know, you're saying this is a growing area and a place where, um, you know, 10 to 13% growth a year. And we have a lot of students who listen, a lot of uh, postdocs, folks who are really in the, in the middle of their scientific careers, scratching their heads every day saying, what will I do someday? And what advice would you have for them in terms of either career guidance or classroom preparation so that they might be able to contribute to this field? That's a great question, too. And I try to um, recruit people who are interested in applications of science. This is clearly a very applied area of science, and there are some discoveries. Um, I would say that we're still in the discovery phase of how we can use our peroxidase enzyme. And we have a lot of students that work in that area. It's a wide open field with lots of opportunity. And I think that once we break the barrier of getting plant-made products onto the market, I think it's going to break it wide open. And I sincerely hope Infinite Enzymes is the pioneer in that area. (laughs) (laughs) So if we want to learn more about Infinite Enzymes or maybe your work, where would people begin to look? And are you um, present in social media anywhere like Twitter? Yes, they can. Our website has a lot of links to both Facebook and particularly LinkedIn. Um, We post videos on YouTube and we have, I have a um, website at the university as well, which um, I think you have 
the link to that as well, Kevin. And but Infinite Enzymes, yes, has um, completely um, dumped ourselves into the social media. Uh, we're not quite as active on Twitter as we hope to be eventually, but um, you can find us on Facebook and LinkedIn for sure. Perfect. And I'll provide all of those links. Um, that's something that'll come along with the website page. So Dr. Elizabeth Hood, um, thank you so much for joining us. It was really an intriguing look into an area that we really haven't discussed much on the podcast before, yet a growing area of biotechnology and a great application of the technology. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. And thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Uh, write a review on iTunes or anywhere where you consume podcast media. Um, maybe tell some friends that you enjoy the podcast and suggest guests. And uh, we'll follow up with you shortly. Uh, again, this is the Talking Biotech Tech podcast. And for Dr. Elizabeth Hood, and for me, mahalo. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to TalkingBiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review of this podcast on iTunes and recommend it to a friend. More downloads help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's Electronic Lab Notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.